A few years ago, I attended a meeting of the English-speaking houses of our congregation at St. Michael's Abbey in Farnborough, England. Midway through the week, we took a break from our discussions to visit Waverley Abbey uh, in Surrey. Waverley Abbey was the first Cistercian monastery founded in England in 1128. It was the home uh, of 190 monks who raised sheep, brewed beer, and extended hospitality to travelers and pilgrims until the dissolution of the monasteries in 1536 under Henry VIII's new paradigm. The monastery was given to Sir William Moore, the royal treasurer who demolished most of the abbey buildings and carted the warm, honey-colored stone ten miles away to his new mansion. There is little that remains today. The transept of the abbey church is there, the walls of the dormitory and refectory, part of the chapter house. Disney's Into the Woods was filmed there, and so was Howard's End and a dozen other films. So if Henry didn't like the monks, Hollywood certainly did. The ruins are now part of a park maintained by British Heritage. The site attracts a trickle of visitors who come to picnic on the grass at what was once the monks' choir. Historical markers explain all the functions of the buildings where the monks sang the office, the refectory where they ate, the dormitory where they slept, the gardens where they grew their vegetables. There were nine of us in all in habit on that spring day we visited Waverley. We found a small bronze marker where the high altar of the former abbey church once stood and said midday prayer. Everywhere we went, we were shadowed by a little boy about five or six years old who arrived with his parents just behind us. You don't see many monks in Britain. Henry VIII and Elizabeth I took care of that. So we thought he was just being curious. But toward the end of our visit, he inched his way toward us. And after staring at us for a few moments, he asked, Aren't you supposed to be dead? Walking through the ruins of the plundered abbeys of Europe is a lot like walking through a graveyard. There is a similar sense of death and decay. It's easy to imagine the ghosts of the long-dead monks of Waverley Abbey wondering who these people are with their funny clothes, picnicking on the sacred spaces where they once sang the divine office and celebrated the Eucharist? Or who are these children running and shouting through the cloisters where they kept a prayerful silence? Mark Twain said once that whatever reality was, it could be beaten through imagination. Children have no lack of it. This is this little boy with the vivid imagination may have intuited what adults can no longer see. Nine monks wandering around the bare, ruined cloisters had drifted in out of the fog of death, visible to him, but invisible to everybody else. It didn't help that the descriptions given of monastic life and the historical markers had the verbs all in the past tense. It's how we speak of the dead and in an inaccessible place removed from the present where we live our lives. 
One of the striking things about the accounts of the resurrection of Christ from the dead is that the news comes as a complete surprise to everybody. And when they meet the risen Christ, they inevitably fail to recognize him. Tonight's gospel is a curious exception to that rule. That was because seeing was not believing, whereas you and I must believe what we do not see. But how could we blame them? Christ's tomb was located where tombs are generally found, in a graveyard. It's the last place you would expect or even want to find the deceased strolling around admiring the red plastic geraniums. Moreover, in some cases, I'm thinking in particular about the Emmaus passage of Luke 24, the verbs describing Jesus are all in the past tense, which is the normal verb tense we use in speaking about the dead. In all these encounters with the risen Lord, the words are never explicitly spoken, but surely someone wanted to ask, aren't you supposed to be dead? That sums up the human worldview of death as the last word on any human life. Resurrection was as statistically rare in the first century as it is today. And as unbelievable as it is, as strange, unlikely, or even utterly outrageous as it may be, Christ returned from death not as a ghost or a phantom, but as a glorified human body, was and is the fundamental event in an entirely new worldview, a worldview which says that God has acted directly in human history to rescue us from the time-bound, death-bound world that we live in. The resurrection is not merely the beginning of a new way of exploring post-mortem life. It is the beginning of a new way of understanding the world and how we should be living in it, not as those who have no hope, no purpose, no goal to our existence. This means that Easter is not really a spectator's sport. To be exact, it is a participational theology. Well, a participational Christology, really. The liturgical cue for this is the renewal of our baptismal vows. In baptism, we were sacramentally inducted into Christ's death and resurrection. This is what St. Paul means when he says in Romans that we were buried with Christ in baptism so that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. So, Practically speaking, this means that Christ's risen life is our life. And that means that the baptized and the chrismated are made capable of bearing the full weight of the risen Christ's glory. So tonight, we should be asking, aren't we supposed to be dead? And the answer is, of course, true, we are dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ.